0: Hi, I'm Shelley, and I'm Cam, and this is Translating ADHD. Before we kick off this week's episode, a reminder that we are accepting applications for our next coaching group with the topic of navigating the lunch counter. So this is really getting at the heart of doing your own work. And the Understand, Own, and Translate model that we advocate for so strongly on the show. So if you've been on the fence, we still have a couple of slots available as of recording. Now you all hear this a week after we hit record, but we would love to hear from you if the group is of interest to you. And if you're not sure, go ahead and fill out the form. Include your questions. We would love to dialogue with you to see if this is a right fit for you. So this week, we're going to continue this thread of advocacy and agency, and we're going to look specifically at managing professional relationships from the standpoint of advocacy and agency. I'd like to kick off with a recent client example that I feel really highlights a lot of the challenges that I see for my clients, especially those in traditional work environments. Cam, is that all right with you?
1: Oh, yeah, please.
0: Okay. So, this client works at a marketing firm, and this marketing firm is large enough that they handle multiple types of projects for their clients. She is in a project manager type role. So, she is the one interfacing with the client, providing them information on how the marketing efforts are performing, recommending additional steps or actions or services to those clients based on their goals. And so really she's the one doing the collaborative work with the client in a coaching session. She shows up and she's got a client meeting coming up and the dread for this meeting is so strong that it has her not only in the pool, but she's in the deep end. She's thrashing. She's frozen, not just on the work she needs to do for this meeting, but everything else as well, pure freeze. So we started to dig in there. What's going on? What is it about this meeting that is so scary that you're frozen? And it started with this general sense of, I'm not prepared. So we dug in. What do you mean you're not prepared? What does that mean? What does it mean to be prepared? What we discovered is while she was feeling like she wasn't prepared, what was actually happening is the client was requesting a specific type of data that could not be produced in the way the client wanted it. And she didn't realize that on a conscious level until it came out in coaching. So what was the behavior that was happening there? Well, every time she did think about the meeting, if she was able to unfreeze, she would go back and try once again to solve this unsolvable problem to obvious results, but not so obvious to her at the time. So she's trying to solve this problem for the client. She's not getting any traction. She's not acknowledging that she can't deliver what the client is asking for. And that leaves her with this general sense of being unprepared. So the reason I bring up this example is what the client thought our coaching work was going to be around that day was being prepared, doing what she needed to do to walk into this meeting ready for it to happen. What the topic ended up being about is knowing your role and managing expectations, managing that client's expectations that this data is not producible in the way that you're asking. It's just not. So I found that fascinating, just totally different topic than the one she thought she was bringing to the table. And we see this so often with our clients. And we get into this dynamic where we let others dictate our role to us, the client asking for the data, and we don't stop. We don't generate any awareness. We don't distinguish. We just try to do what is asked. And so this is back to where we ended last week. I don't have to answer as
1: asked. Yeah. And there's some really good translating work there. Yeah. I think that we can get so hung up at this. I call it the stop sign. These sort of declarative statements of like, well, I procrastinate. And that's that. It's a stop sign. It has a stop and not move forward. She came, at least she showed up, but it was like, I'm not prepared. It's about me. And as you dig in, it's getting past that initial stop sign and not be curious and actually has us have a little diversion into the pool or a deep valley of, oh, it's got to be me. What do I have to do? And this is the fascinating thing, Shelley, that I've been thinking about with this idea of seeing ourselves in the picture. And as we said that, I was thinking, oh, it's about the self, right? And seeing yourself in the picture. It's more than that. It's really seeing yourself and what you stand for. What is your value? What are your roles? But also, it's about the picture. You brought that up in last sessions in the sense of there can be this disconnect that we come fully equipped, but there's a disengagement from our picture of the sense of what is being asked. Is it realistic? There's an interesting thing that happens. I see this all the time because we have a challenge around prospective memory. We have a challenge around estimation of time and what is possible. So often we'll just shoot for the moon. Or expect that, you know, if I just give 110%, it'll work out whatever it is. And so we miss that opportunity to ask that question of, wait a second, is this even feasible? To look at the actual picture and see, is this based in reality? We are high associative, high contextual individuals who we struggle with compartmentalization. And so even with that of like, what is possible and what is not? It's one of these boundaries that can be very fluid.
0: Another thing at play here is that one downer making up for perspective that we so often have as ADHD people. We're worried that somebody is going to find us out. We are so focused on our shortcomings and where we haven't performed well in the past that the story we tell ourselves is we have to perform as asked. We have to answer as asked. So we don't even stop to consider whether or not that's possible. That's exactly what was happening for this client who, by the way, is incredibly good at what she does, is in a supportive environment at work, is valued at work. And I throw that in because it's really important to understand that Well, that story can come up, that one-down perspective can come up when we're in a toxic environment, when we're in a work environment that doesn't work for us, when we're not able to work to our strengths. It can come up just as strongly when we're in an excellent environment, when we have all of the support that we need, when those around us are aware of our challenges, but they see our value and our strengths, and they accept the shortcomings because of what we're bringing to the table. So in her case, it was really about, first of all, noticing that that's even what was going on, and then finding that confidence to articulate this to her client.
1: That's such a great story. There's so much to look at there. You know, I think that there's that Hail Mary, sort of like, I can atone for all of my sins if I just deliver on this. And that's that high contextual... That's what I always had when I was at work and when I was teaching. It was this sense of I can atone for everything with this one move, and then I can leave that behind. And this is a, a little topic I want to bring in a little bit later about this sort of internal language and how it shows up and manifests in our external behavior and that there's some translating work to be done there. I want to bring in another perspective there. There's the one down and the imposter and that. There's also the fast brain where they're ahead and it's sort of like, why aren't you people getting this? What's your problem? Why can't you keep up with me? I have a whole host of clients who have that mindset and for both seeing yourself in the picture to appreciate the picture. There are others in that picture too, that to work on empathy in the sense of empathizing with the others. What are they thinking? What do they have going on? And bringing, you said confidence. I want to add trust. Trusting. We have this sort of snapshot approach, sort of like in this moment, we have a snapshot and we're not really taking in consideration all the evidence of our good work and our value. So we forget it because of that working memory aspect. We forget our sense of self, one of our episodes, identity, another episode. In that moment, we forget. And so it's sort of like we panic and it's like, oh, I can atone. So trusting that others that are in the room, number one, have your back. Maybe not a client where it's like in that situation there, but trusting that you're doing good work. There's others who believe in you and it's likely that there's agreements. There's been some co-creating that roles are defined. I just want to say one more thing for both situations to come back to the terms that we've been talking about to make a short list of, okay, well, am I creating expectation here? What is the expectation? Do we have an agreement? Am I getting outside of my comfort zone with respect to a role? And how are my boundaries here? And then finally, what needs, my own individual needs, maybe not getting addressed right now. So those five areas to look at those and get a realistic snapshot of that picture.
0: Well said, Cam. And it's interesting that you say that when it's a client relationship, it can look a little different. So I kind of wanted to toss in this information about this client. And that is ultimately that client of hers was moved to someone else. However, that did not change how she's valued at work. In fact, it was acknowledged that that particular client was not an easy client to work with. So it was moved more for a matter of fit than anything else. And it didn't change the way she's valued at work or in her role. And we so often forget that. We think the next setback is going to be our undoing. It's going to be total failure. That is part of the story she was telling herself, in which we started unpacking what's it really like at work and noticing she does have support she's not going to be fired over this client interaction, yet she was putting it all on her own shoulders.
1: So I'd love to bring in another example, a little different one that's right in line with managing professional relationships. But before I do that, I want to touch on that internal dialogue, external behavior piece. I think we're onto something here. So, back to me with my internal dialogue and your client with kind of that default, like, oh, you know, uh oh, I'm not showing up. So, how can I show up? And so, then that internal dialogue gets it manifests into our external dialogue and behavior. This would leak out. You know, it's sort of like we are all so familiar with our roller coaster rides and our circular thinking that we have inside ourselves. You have to be careful. Of sharing that, especially with a neurotypical, because for a neurotypical, that circular thinking that you're so familiar with, it can be a little scary for them because it's sort of like you're rocking their world. Their paradigm is getting challenged there. And any human being, when they're sort of not connecting the dots, they start to make up stuff. This is human behavior. That's why we bring together agency and advocacy. We have to define our roles, show our value, and then be able to articulate that. Not to say, oh my God, I got to be quiet and zip my mouth all week. No, just noticing, noticing your internal dialogue and can you tweak it in a way that you can then export it and share it with others in a more of a constructive fashion. We're going to talk more about this when we get to disclosure and accommodation and modifications and speaking about your unique brain wiring, to bring that to other people.
0: Cam, it's so interesting how that internal dialogue can twist our behavior and how we're showing up and how other people might perceive that, even other neurodivergents. As you were talking about, this is the action that will clear the slate, that will clear my name, that will make up for... I don't know if you noticed, but I was turning a little red over here.
1: Oh, no, I didn't. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Now I'm going to tell you why. If you recall, and listeners, you won't recall, so let me catch you up. A couple of weeks ago, you and I had a conversation where I had a complete meltdown about certification. Just a complete meltdown, listeners. I mean, complete meltdown, tears and the whole bit. And what I just realized when you said that is that's what I was doing. So the meltdown was around needing to ask for an accommodation to push the deadline, which had already been pushed once. And the person I'm making the ask of is incredibly accommodating and is almost always willing to provide an accommodation if it's something that she is capable of doing. But the story I was telling myself is, I've done this so many times. I did this when I was in coaching classes. This is my... Third go at getting through this certification process, and I didn't even make it through the first two times. So she's probably expecting that I'm just going to quit again, especially since I'm asking for yet another extension. So I'm not only filling in all of this context, I am making up her mind about how she feels about this, and that's how I'm communicating with her. I'm writing from this apologetic place where, you know, I'm putting myself in this position I don't need to be in.
1: Yeah, great story. And then that energy expenditure, right? We pull in, in that situation, we pull in all of our inner critic language and all that inner critic and that emotion. And we've talked about how it can be sort of a dirty snowball for us, right? We said the thoughts and ideas and feelings get mushed together. And all of that creates this distortion in our picture, And we lose sight of what is actually going on. So as we do that and we go into the deep end of the pool or deep down into a valley on Mount Rainier, it's like we lose sight of what is actually going on. We lose sight of those resources who are there wanting us to succeed and support us. So coming back to like checking that, noticing it, bringing in that keen observer. Oh, this is what I'm noticing. Noticing how this is showing up. You're making up her mind for you. It's almost like you're creating that dialogue. So much energy goes into that. Like, wait, you called a timeout there. So there's so much more here. And again, I think this is something we just came across here today of this internal dialogue, external behavior. There's translating right there.
0: Yeah. And for this particular relationship, this person is also a coach and has been a coach for a very long time. So... She's able to recognize this type of thing, and it doesn't skew her perception of me. But imagine your neurotypical coworker or a client who is taking the context based on how you're showing up, who doesn't have the backstory or the context of you as an ADHD person. All they have is how you are showing up. So you're modeling for them this one-down thinking, this I'm not good enough. That's what you're showing outwardly when you do that. And to your own detriment, not to the detriment of anybody else, to your own detriment. Because again, you're making up that person's mind for them and you're giving them the context to buy
1: into that storyline. And this is where we start to externalize our own ADD experience, in the sense that with big brainers, our challenge is getting into action, activation, engaging, doing, the doing aspect, completing, finishing on time, or managing those expectations and negotiating and renegotiating. And so it's like, oh, next time I'll do better, twice as well. And then if the other side is not seeing those results, this question mark comes up. We'll talk more about this, what happens. This dissonance that occurs, it is fascinating because people, when they see a capable and competent person who is not being capable and competent in this moment of time, this is the key people, this is the ADD piece, we're capable and competent, but it's a time thing at the right time, hitting that performance mark. And so then people make up stuff. And this is where there's an opportunity to manage, to help them understand there's more than one brain style. There's more than one way to approach things. And how can you make it more complimentary than this question mark? For the fast brain, it's the other thing in the sense of empathy and pausing and considering and checking in with folks. The one who I was saying is like, why can't they keep up? It's impatience. You're coming across as impatient, frustrated, arrogant. And what's happening is you're all into the engagement and the doing, and it's that slowing down to pause, reflect, check in with your team. I want to use one more example here as we finish out today, Shelly. Okay. It's interesting. It starts with this. I think that there's an opportunity with the initial pool situation. You talked about your client with the dread, that dread can be this informative thing as we move from awareness to safety to that mobility in the pool analogy. For my client, it's a fear, starting with this fear. So here she is, she is a principal of a small firm, and it's growing. And she needs to hire in order to be able to grow and keep up with demand. And so she's thinking about hiring people, but what she has is this, I will say a dread and a fear of, ah, I'm not a good manager. I'm not a good manager. That's her internal dialogue. If I could just sort of hire people and they would just be autonomous, I didn't have to manage and track and delegate. Oh, because when I delegate, I got to go back and check. And so we did some coaching there and looking at that moving past that stop sign of taking that initial emotional response and bringing it into, let's get curious about this. Let's be curious and let's talk about how can it be? This is in the context of her growth of her company. She doesn't have to get bigger. Agency here would be to, hey, you know what? I'm good. But she really wanted to expand because she saw opportunity there. So then we looked at the opportunity of bringing people in and how she wanted it to be on her terms. She's like, what? What do you mean? I get to do this on my terms? You're the principal. Why not? And it was really interesting. She went back to this sort of this moment in time where it's like, you know, there was a time when I just loved working with groups. And it was when I was a graduate student and it was architecture school and we were in studio and we got to be in there and we were creating. And I just, I got to be the teacher, the professor. I was like, oh, tell me about professor and teacher. And what came in was what was happening in the room was bigger than any individual. These people had these ideas and they're trying to put it onto paper and getting frustrated. And she had this opening, this holding the space like coaching in a way. They're like, what can we create here? And that's what she brought. And it's been amazing because she's seen them as whole humans with different brains. And she has a unique style. And what can we do together to start to think about the picture that we're going to color together? Really fascinating stuff. And it starts with, again, if she came in there with, I'm not a good manager, that would have colored the whole experience and how she interacted with her people. But now she's got people and she's co-creating with them, developing agreements, discussing expectations, defining roles, clear boundaries, addressing their needs so they can have a private life outside of the professional work they're doing with each other to see that other as a human and what do they have to contribute that all of us together can do so much more together. I want to say one last thing here. This is something that's so important to me and it just, it feels like in professional organizations, they're missing the point on this whole idea of cognitive diversity. We're starting, it's starting to move, but it's so fascinating to see how different thought is seen as a threat and What we bring is different thought. The opportunity for us as neurodiverse individuals is to let people know our different thinking is an added benefit and not a threat. That's the opportunity to translate and not to overwhelm folks with everything we're thinking about in one moment because your experience, they're like silo people and we're the the big broad brushstroke people.
0: I love that, Cam. And it's something that rings true for all of my clients when they start to step into their strength and see their value. There's a real recognition that their divergent thinking is a big part of what brings value for them. It's a big part of where their value lies. And again, not to say that this means that ADHD is a gift. That's not what we're saying here. It just is. Your brain is wired differently. You are a divergent thinker. And with that comes challenges, but with that also comes unique perspective and strength. And when my clients start articulating their value, that's what they're articulating. And I agree with you about workplaces. And I'll even add that in the work that I've done with workplaces, because I do some speaking for workplaces on ADHD and time, it's so accommodations focused. And accommodations are okay. Accommodations can be great, but the conversation is bigger than just accommodations. And by the way, asking to do something differently or acknowledging that your brain works differently does not necessarily mean that you are getting an accommodation. I think there's an important distinction to be made there as well. Because if we look at everything as an accommodation, guess where that one down perspective comes from? If you're getting an actual accommodation on something metrics-based, you're getting more time, you're getting more lenient numbers or whatever else it is, fine, great. But that accommodation language overall needs to change because not everything is an accommodation and we don't need as much accommodating as workplaces think we do.
1: Yeah, And there's so much more there. We get to cover that when we get to disclosure and whether to disclose or not. So, so much here. Lots here. We just—it's so much fun to do this with you because we just keep unpacking. We're unpacking, yep. people. We're just unpacking it. That's what we've been
0: doing for over a year now, right?
1: Unpacking. <laughs> fun, fun.
0: Well, we'll find out eventually if uh, this onion runs out of layers. But so far, <laughs> oh. so far, it seems like we're not. Any it, that onion's to the in the center. ground.
1: That onion is in the ground, growing, Shelly. It's growing. <laughs> we're we're peeling, but it's growing. It's
0: growing. I agree. So let's wrap here. If you like what we're doing here on the show, you've all heard this far too many times, but we're going to say it again. Three key ways that you can help us out. The first is to leave a review wherever you listen. This helps other people find the show. This also lets other people know that we are worth listening to. The second is to share the show. Share it on social. Share it with friends. Share it with colleagues who also have ADHD. The third is to become a patron. So for $5 a month, not only are you supporting the running of the show, helping us pay the costs of editing and everything else that goes into bringing you a show each week, you also gain access to our Discord community where our listeners are working together to do their own understand, own, and translate work. So until next week, I'm Shelly. And I'm Cam. And this was Translating ADHD. Thanks for listening.